Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on Sunday, March 14th by Pastor Rob Schaff. This is the first message in our Easter 2021 sermon series entitled, The Battle of the Wills. Check out sardisfellowship.com for more information about our church. In these weeks leading up to Easter, we're starting a new sermon series called Battle of the Wills, taking a look at Jesus and his disciples and the story and teaching and example of Jesus set in the time leading up to his crucifixion and looking at what that might mean for us today. In the Gospels, there are complex tensions between struggle and obedience, defiance and submission. There is conflict that ensues as Jesus' disciples have their will and their perspective and their desires broken down and then reshaped to be more in keeping with who God is and what God wills. At times, following Jesus can feel like a real battle. In Romans 7, Paul writes this, Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's Romans 7, 22 to 25. Paul knew this battle of the wills that warred within himself, and I think every believer can relate to this. But a battle of the wills can be more than that too. A follower of Jesus will feel pushed and pulled in many different directions by many different sources, and at times it can be difficult to discern what the right way is. Sometimes it's clear, and other times it can feel like there's where we want to go, and there's where the world wants us to go, and where our friends want us to go, and where our family wants us to go, and where the church wants us to go, and oh, it can be too much. To make things more complicated, sometimes we feel like we're on the right track, but then we come to a greater depth of understanding, and it changes everything, and we realize we weren't on the right track at all. When I was a kid, my favorite flavor of ice cream was called Tiger Tiger. It's orange, and it's black ice cream swirled together, and to me, it tasted like orange and magic. It was really something. It tasted so good. And one day, when I was having a Tiger Tiger ice cream cone, a friend of mine who was with me said, I thought you hated black licorice, to which I replied, I do. Black licorice tastes disgusting. And he said, well, you do know that Tiger Tiger ice cream is just orange sherbet with black licorice, right? And from that day onward, I couldn't stand the flavor of Tiger Tiger ice cream. All I could taste was black licorice. And as a kid, it sent me into this ice cream existential crisis. Sometimes I think as Christians, we think we'll have something all figured out like we're on the right track, and then we bump up against a different perspective that challenges what we think we know, and it helps us to see things from a different perspective, and it sends us into this crisis. Who is right? On top of that, sometimes people use the same words but mean different things. When this happens, who's right? When people say things like, well, it's a free country, or I'm proud to be a Canadian, or I'm so blessed, or... Let's end homelessness, or I'm the boss. When people say these things, you hear them in a context, and then you filter them through your own experience, your whole life's worth of personal experiences. And, you know, you can be reasonably sure that you know what they're saying, but misunderstandings are bound to happen. And if it's a friendly conversation, it's no big deal. But sometimes 
It can lead to serious conflict and crisis, an existential crisis, and we don't know what to think anymore. In England in 1953, two guys named Derek Bentley and Christopher Craig are robbing a warehouse at gunpoint. And the police catch, they, they show up and they catch them red-handed. And one police officer says to the burglars, hand over the gun, lad. And 19-year-old Derek Bentley says to 16-year-old Christopher Craig, let him have it, Chris. Let him have it. What exactly did he mean? Did he mean, hand him the gun, it's over? Or did he mean, let's go down shooting, shoot him? Well, Christopher Craig took it to mean shoot him because that's what he did. He ended up shooting two police officers and killing one. Derek Bentley and Christopher Craig were both arrested and put on trial for murder. And in the trial, it became important to figure out just what Derek Bentley meant when he said, let him have it. Was he trying to tell Christopher that they were going to turn themselves in? Or was he trying to tell them that they would shoot their way out of it? What did Bentley want to have happen? What did he desire Christopher Craig to do? Misunderstandings aren't always a matter of life and death. But they were in this case, both for the police officer who lost his life and for Bentley when the jury decided let him have it meant shoot the officer, which led Bentley to receive capital punishment for murder, even though he wasn't the one who actually pulled the trigger. That's one of those truth is stranger than fiction stories, a matter of life and death with no room for misunderstanding. And unfortunately, that's exactly what happened, a big misunderstanding and death. I'm thinking most of us probably can't relate to the holding up a warehouse at gunpoint aspect of the story, but experiencing the consequences of a misunderstanding is much more relatable, as is trying to sort out who is right. When someone says, I'm a Christian, what do they mean? They could mean that their family went to church growing up, or they could mean that Jesus is the Lord of their life. The hearer thinks, oh great, another Christian. Or maybe they think, oh great, another Christian. Well, in today's Battle of the Wills sermon, we're looking at a story found in Matthew 16, verses 13 onwards, where Jesus and his disciples realize they've been saying some of the same words, but meaning wildly different things. Those two words and concepts are these, that of Messiah and that of disciple. Matthew 16 reads, starting in verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Many in Jesus' day believed God would send an anointed king, a Messiah, who would spearhead a movement freeing Israel from oppression and bringing justice and peace to the world. Scripture talked about this Messiah and how God's kingdom would be brought to earth, and many people had theories about what it could look like, but nobody really knew for sure. Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah, the Son of God, aka you are God's anointed king. And Jesus says, 
Blessed are you, Simon, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And then Jesus says, you say I'm the Messiah? Here's who I say you are. You are Peter. Peter means rock. He says, you say that I'm the Messiah? I say that you're the rock I'll build my church on. Imagine how excited Peter must have felt when he heard those words. He must have felt like a kid who gave the right answer in front of the whole class and got a sticker but like a thousand times better than that. God revealed something to him and Peter gave the right answer to Jesus. And Jesus tells Peter that he has big plans for Peter and for the other disciples. I'm going to build a church. And then in verse 20, Jesus orders his disciples not to tell anyone that he is the Messiah. Why? Well, in the words of N.T. Wright, in the first century, there were several would-be messiahs who came and went, attracting followers who were quickly dispersed when their leader was caught by the authorities. One thing was certain, to be known as a would-be messiah was to attract attention from the authorities and almost certainly hostility. That makes sense. We don't want this movement to get squashed before it has a chance to really take off. So, you know, Jesus is the Messiah, and it'd be a bad idea to let that get out broadly, attract all kinds of unwanted attention. So we're all in agreement, right? Guys, let's, let's keep this hush-hush. Peter certainly had plans for the Messiah, as did the other disciples, and everyone else who greatly anticipated the Messiah's arrival. The Messiah was going to change everything. There was going to be freedom from oppressions and from oppressors. There was going to be a brand new kingdom with justice for all. And the Messiah would be king and loyal disciples would serve at the king's pleasure. And they'd all rule together. And the disciples would even be foundational to this new kingdom. And all of that sounds, well, pretty good. But more than all of that, this was not some vain dream. It was how they expected God would work. It was what they hoped for. It was what they anticipated. It was what they expected. You say the word Messiah, and everybody kind of thought along those lines. That's what you meant, right? Everybody knew that's what you meant. But that isn't exactly what God meant for the Messiah. Actually, it wasn't even close. One commentator put it like this. Recognizing Jesus as the Messiah was an important first step, but not very helpful when the disciples' concept of Messiahship differed so greatly from Jesus' own. Jesus' messiahship meant that he would suffer and die. And so Jesus starts to reframe the disciples' understanding of Messiah around God's perspective. In verse 21, it says, From that time on, Jesus began to show the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Matthew 6, 16, 21. God was leading Jesus to a place where he would be beaten Betrayed, flogged, disgraced and humiliated, suffering a painful crucifixion, a dishonorable death, and all of this at the hands of those whom God loves and wanted to save. And then being raised from death to new life. That's how Jesus understood the Messiah's mission. The disciples were clearly out of step. When Peter said, you are the Messiah, he meant all of the good things that he had in mind for Jesus, not this new definition that Jesus was thinking about. Verse 22 continues, Peter took him, Jesus, aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus 
turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is more than a slight misunderstanding. Peter is saying, Jesus, that's not what God wants for the Messiah. Ironic, isn't it? Peter correcting Jesus, God incarnate, the Messiah himself, on what God wants for the Messiah. It seems ridiculous, but I actually think that we do the same thing all the time. Whether we mean to or not, we also tell God how to be God. Maybe not face-to-face like Peter did, but I'm willing to bet that at some point in your life, you've had the thought, God, what are you doing? So much injustice or pain or sickness or futility or whatever, fill in the blank. Why don't you just... When we say that, what we're really saying is, God, I think I know better than you. We tell God the right way for God to be God, the way that we think is best. But that's not how God works, and that's not how the world works. And that's actually a good thing, because our perspective is limited, and our biases are twisted, and our desires are selfish and insufficient to the task at hand. We are not God, Isaiah 55, 8-9 says, God's thoughts aren't our thoughts and God's ways aren't our ways. His ways are higher as heaven is higher than earth. And that is the tension Peter is feeling with Jesus. Peter feels like he knows best because what Jesus is suggesting doesn't make any sort of sense to Peter. And as far as Peter can tell, Peter has got his feet planted firmly on realistic ground and Jesus has his head in the clouds making no sense in a real bad way that could actually get them all killed. But Jesus says, Peter, you're not focusing on God's interests. You're focused on man's interests. It was God who revealed to you that I was the Messiah. But now, Peter, you're starting to sound like Satan. In this moment, the attitude of Peter was dead wrong, and it represented everything that Jesus is actually on earth to undo. This self-centered attitude and life that only wants what it thinks is best, rather than following the will of God, come hell or high water, trusting that God knows what's best, that God's got a bigger plan in mind. So Peter rebukes Jesus, no, far be it from you. And Jesus in turn rebukes Peter, get behind me, Satan. If Jesus' idea of messiahship is so different from his disciples, they probably weren't getting what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus either. So Jesus, just as Jesus recalibrates their understanding of Messiah, he now goes on to recalibrate their understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. In verse 24, it says, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It's Matthew 16, 24 to 28. Now, pardon the pun, but this is not the sort of rock star Peter thought he was going to be. It wasn't what the disciples had in mind for Jesus or for themselves. It wasn't the end goal that they were hoping for. They had in mind something more like, 
take charge of your life, attain your dreams by devoting yourself to the life that you desire and be delivered from hardship and suffering and squeeze every bit of life you can out of this world. Own your part in what you're making the world into. And that's what is good. And I think today it's tempting for us to frame a life lived in that pursuit and call it Christian. But Jesus knows that while that might not be a bad life, that isn't actually what God wants. That's a broken end goal. You could gain everything the whole world has to offer and lose your soul. And then what would be the point of that life? That's not what God wants for anyone. The path that Jesus is leading his disciples down is infinitely better than everything that the world has to offer. A path full of self-denial and suffering and even death for God's purposes that leads to the promises and the rewards of God is always better than a path populated by everything your flesh could ever want that leads to the promises and rewards of Satan. This is a new idea for the disciples, reframing of the words Messiah and disciples that's, that's very clearly stated. They've got to deny themselves. They've got to carry the cross. They've got to follow Jesus. This is a matter of life and death. There is no room for misunderstanding. N.T. Wright says, Following Jesus will cost everything and give everything. You have to lose your life to find it. To those who follow him today, Jesus makes equally large promises. He is already the risen and exalted Lord of the world. We don't have to wait as they did for his vindication. It's already happened. Cling on to your life and you will lose it. Get everything you've got to following Jesus, including life itself, and you'll win it. In every generation, there are, it seems, a few people who are prepared to take Jesus seriously at his word. What would it be like if you were one of them? Now, I have a confession. I enjoy reality show cooking competitions. And most of the time, these shows are a bunch of amateur cooks trying to prove to the master chefs that they know what they're doing. And the drama of these shows happens when instead of actually learning from the master chefs, the amateur cooks try to fake it and basically try to trick the master chefs into giving them the final prize, which is, wait for it, their own restaurant. The profound irony in this is that the prize of having your own restaurant would be completely lost on someone who can't actually cook at the level of a proper chef. The best prize that the disciples could imagine was a good life for them and their people in an earthly kingdom where they held some status. And I don't blame them because that's what everyone thought the Messiah was going to bring. But Jesus knew that God wanted to accomplish something so much more, eternal life for all, who would believe, accomplished in a way that nobody could have ever envisioned through the death of Jesus on a cross. It was Jesus' obedience to his messianic mission that accomplished the will of God. Salvation from our sins and reconciliation between God and man. And Jesus calls us to follow in his footsteps, putting God's will over our own comfortable safety, our own ambitions, our hopes, our plans, our desires, all the while trusting that what God des- that what God desires for us is better and ultimately knowing that there is eternal life that transcends any of the death and the suffering that we could ever experience in this life. And that changes everything. How do you get from amateur cook to legit master chef? Well, every day you learn to let go of your faking it and you seize every opportunity to learn how to cook until it's what you live and you breathe until your desires are reshaped and you let go of your ego and your assumptions and you learn from the master. How do you get from my will, not God's will, to denying yourself, 
picking up your cross and following Jesus? Well, every day you let go of your own selfish desires and you drop all pretension and you seek the will of God over and above your own. In the battle of wills between yourself and God, you admit your shortcomings. You say, you are God and I am not. God, your plan is better than mine. Your perspective is bigger than mine. And I trust that you know what's best. I thought I knew what I was doing, but next to you, it's clear that I really don't. And I want to stop faking it. I want to be a part of the eternal things that you're up to and not just the temporary things that I keep myself busy with. I'm done faking it. I want to learn from the master and I'd rather suffer and die for you and your purposes than hold on to all that this world has to offer. We won't always do the right thing, but I tell you one thing, it's better to screw it up and repent and learn than to try to fake it and to try to trick the master into giving us a prize we're not going to know what to do with. And that's what this ultimately comes down to. When you think of love or power or glory or happiness or safety or security or prestige or treasure or value or meaning or life, who gets to define what those things mean to you? And when you find that what you mean and what God means by those terms aren't in alignment, who is going to be right? Is it you and your limitations or is it God in his infinity? Our natural desire is to get as much as we can, as fast as we can, and hold on to it for as long as we can. That's just the world that we live in. But Jesus is calling us to let all of that go and to trust instead that God knows better and has better. Why would you hold on to all the things this world has to offer when you could hold the hand of the one who created all things? Now, Peter's story doesn't end here, and it actually gets a little bit worse before it gets better. He goes on to deny Jesus three times before his crucifixion. And after Jesus' resurrection, when sitting face to face with the risen Jesus, Peter is worried that the cross of suffering that Jesus is asking him to bear is going to be heavier than that of the other apostles. And Peter wonders, is that fair? But Jesus says, what does it matter if the road that I'm calling you to walk on is harder than the road that I'm calling them to walk on? You follow me. And Peter did. He picked up his cross and he followed Jesus' footsteps and his suffering was not in vain. In 1 Peter 4, 1-2, Peter would come to write, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself also with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. In the end, Peter gets it. And through Peter and the other, the other apostles, the Holy Spirit worked powerfully to accomplish the will of God in establishing the church of Jesus. It is my prayer that I will get it too, and that you will get it as well. In the fight between God's grace and my pride, I don't want to win. I just want to surrender and to follow. I'd like to close this sermon with a blessing that Paul prayed, which is found in Ephesians 3. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.
Here are some questions to discuss. One, what are some words and phrases and concepts that your faith in Jesus changes for you as opposed to the rest of the world? For example, love, glory, honor, power, success, etc. Two, being a Christian requires us to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross, and to follow Jesus. How have you had to do this in your own life in the last week, month, three year, or lifetime? What, are, what might the Holy Spirit be asking you to give up this week? And number three, what do you do when you feel God is leading you down a path you'd rather not go down? Thanks for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.